Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant ID Podcast. Today, we have George Thompson, G.R. Thompson, from UC Davis. Welcome. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's nice to see you again. Yeah, yeah, it's great to see you. And uh, I think the last time we met was at the uh, Mycosis Study Group meeting that was uh, out in uh, the central, in, in uh, Monterey, California. And you were getting some stuff going with Dr. Fungus. Is that still afloat? Yeah, Dr. Fungus has been around for a long time now. It was first founded by John Rex uh, when he was in Houston and then was run by Tom Patterson in San Antonio for a number of years. And now I've sort of taken over the reins with that, with a big group from the Mycosis Study Group. And it's really served as a resource for the global community. It's free. It's a, it's a way to look up some of these unusual fungal pathogens, read a little bit about them, summarizes the relevant literature, and then can maybe even direct you to an expert to ask any follow-up questions you might have. So it's, it's really just been a resource for the global community. So if anybody's uh, listening to it and have not has not visited Dr. Fungus, the, the name is a little bit uh, lighthearted, but the material is is uh, state of the art, and uh, you can go to it on your favorite search engine, punch in Dr. Fungus, it'll take you there. And really, it's a it's a great resource. Uh, I use it often when uh, I'm dealing with a fungus that I'm not comfortable with, and also when I just want to learn about fungi that I do feel comfortable with. So tell us about yourself and how you got to. Uh, uh, the field of uh, infectious and focus on uh, highly immunocompromised patients? Yeah, that's a great question and sort of starts with a personal story. So in, I uh, grew up in Missouri and during college had sort of a mono-like illness that they couldn't figure out at first. They thought I might've had lymphoma, I ended up being diagnosed with histoplasma uh, while in college. Had a, had a wow. fairly large outbreak of histoplasma at the time. And I thought, you know, what is what is histoplasma? I've never heard of this and was really quite intrigued. And then in medical school, remained very interested in fungi, probably from that sort of personal experience and, and started doing some research on histoplasma, wrote some case series on that. And then my uh, advisor, who was also our chair of medicine, said, hey, you really should should check out training in San Antonio. That's where an awful lot of the fungal disease research happens. And, mm-hmm. you know, was fortunate, got went to residency there. A uh, wonderful experience, and then have just really stayed involved ever since. And you know, fungi are, are I think, you know, they're they're such interesting pathogens. They're eukaryotic, so that the, the drugs we use uh, have a lot of toxicity against us as well. So I find them extremely challenging. You know, each patient seems to be quite different than the one before. So they've really kind of maintained my interest over the last twenty years. Fantastic, fantastic. So from histo, you went to the other one that uh, is uh, mysterious to people that aren't in an endemic area. Now, that having been said, histo has its endemic areas, but it's really everywhere. But uh, coxie, which you've focused a lot of time on, is not everywhere, or at least I don't think it's everywhere. It's not everywhere. I'm a little worried that it's moving across the country eastward from its traditional regions of endemicity. But yeah, it, you know, in Texas, we saw blastomyces, histoplasma, and coccidioides. It's sort of the other valley, the Rio Grande Valley. There's a lot of coccy in that area, too. And took care of a lady that, that had coccy meningitis, 
you know, had recurrent strokes at the time and, and there really wasn't anything we could do for her. And she was otherwise immunocompetent. And I remember being really struck by that. Why does this patient, why does she have such bad infection when we can't find anything wrong with her immune system? And that's a problem that, you know, took us 20 years to answer even in, in part. You know, we, we just recently published that with collaborators from University of Arizona and uh, the NIH, you know, Steve Holland's lab was really essential in that. But, you know, looked at the, the genetics of, of these people with really bad coxie and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still, it didn't explain everybody, but I think it's at least a step in the right direction for, you know, why do these immunocompetent people have such bad coccidiomycosis? And then to circle back to what I, I started with, you know, that there's, you know, coxie we have traditionally ascribed to mostly California and Arizona within the United States. There's been reports of it in Utah, sort of southern Nevada, and then about 10 years ago in southeastern Washington state. And then that that really begs a lot of questions. You know, what about Oregon? What about Idaho? Is it in some of these other areas that have very similar ecologic possibilities to Arizona and, and California? And then Morgan Gorris wrote this paper that under, you know, moderate and severe climate warming scenarios, Coxie was going to move substantially eastward, maybe even all the way to Nebraska. Hmm. Um, et cetera, in the Midwest. And, and I think I viewed that with a lot of skepticism. At first, I thought that might have been a bit alarmist. But, you know, there's been reports now of Coxie in Missouri over the last few years, non-travelers. There was an outbreak in Nebraska just about a year ago. That's not published yet. So I don't, I don't know the specifics of it. So I do think that may be early signs of Coxie moving eastward. There's definitely Coxie in, in southwestern Colorado. We don't know if it's in the soil there year long. It may blow there and then sort of die off each winter. It's not really clear, but but I think we're going to really see more cases of coxie uh, over the next 10 years. Wow. N- not a welcome development, but something that a lot of people have been talking about, uh, the emergence of fungal infections. Uh, and, you know, the uh, is it HBO or Netflix, the, 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 that series aside where the fungi are taking over the world, there is a lot of evidence that Fungi are increasing not just because there's more vulnerable hosts, but that something is changing in terms of the uh, the environment, perhaps. Yeah, that that you know the, when the Last of Us came up came out, I think that was on HBO. I'm not sure. Um, I never played the video game, but you know it, it's under this premise that with global warming, the fungi change and causes this, this sort of parasitic fungus that, that we don't get. You know, really adapts and causes this you know zombie apocalypse, and that's that's interesting mm-hmm. entertainment. But the, the part that's really interesting is there have been the emergence of new fungi. You know, Canada RS, we really didn't mm-hmm. see invasive infections even five or six years ago. That had been isolated in the ear in a patient in Japan. So, you know, ears are colder. Fungi typically don't prefer our body temperature. We're too hot for the vast majority of fungi to grow. But the theory is with climate change that had adapted to higher temperatures and now can cause invasive infection, and then to compound that, we still view that in the United States as a pretty uncommon event, but they've cultured the ears of street dogs in India, and a third of them now are positive for Canada Auris. Hmm. So it may be that the, you know, it's definitely here, it's here to stay. It's a very drug-resistant infection, so very problematic. Other infections that have really been thought to have rapidly um, adapted to the environment, Sporothrix brasiliensis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the Sporothrix they see in Brazil. It had been traditionally a saprophytic organism, you know, lives in dead, decaying material, 
and it seems like it has really moved more to zoonotic and now part of its life cycle that lives on cat's claws. Mm -hmm. uh, we may be seeing the same thing in the U.S. with Borthrix shinkii now. I think that's really unclear. But the other thing that's interesting to me is I've read three different papers that show that human body temperature has declined over the last hundred years. And that may be a product of our diet, you know, the, the obesity epidemic. Uh, we may be a little bit colder, but as we get colder and the fungi in the environment become more adapted to warmer temperatures, those two things are moving closer together. I think we're going to see more and more new fungal pathogens emerge. Now, that, that I had not known about the human body temperature uh, cooling. That That is absolutely fascinating. I think that one of the things that really caught my attention was the uh, the outbreak of mucormycosis in India as to how quickly this environmental fungus took hold in humans that just had a couple of things change about them got steroids, and they didn't get massive steroids for a long period of time. They got steroids, and they had a severe respiratory viral infections, and that seemed to move the needle to all of a sudden. Uh, people in, in India at the time were seeing more mucormycosis in one day than I've seen it in my entire life, and I am sometimes focused on that fungus. Yeah, that was very interesting, and I still think we're going to be putting the pieces of that together for another year or two. I mean, there's a lot of diabetes in India. There's a lot uh -huh. of uncontrolled diabetes. Air samples in India seem to have a very high baseline incidence of, of mucormycosis in the air. Mm -hmm. And then there were some, you know, sort of local practices that might have increased the risk for mucormycosis. I'm still kind of unclear on this. You know, so um, some areas were doing sort of these steam cleanses. So that may have really irritated the airway and caused enough epithelial injury to allow more ready invasion. Uh, in some places, they were burning cow patties, mm -hmm. which do and inhaling that. So those do have a higher incidence of, you know, viable spores from mucormycosis in that. So that confluence of numerous risk factors, I think, was a bit of a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think we're going to put together the pieces. There may have been some immunogenetic factors. You know, there's been a lot of interest of late in, you know, gene methylation caused by environmental factors. So you can silence or upregulate mm -hmm. genes by that. So I think we're going to put that together over the next two to three years. But importantly, I do think that shows that we can do a clinical trial in mucormycosis. We've often in the U.S. Mm -hmm. said there's just not enough. We can't do this. But, you know, if, if we really are open-minded about the design of these studies, we can do this in a place that has such a high incidence. And that would really help, you know, the global group of affected patients. Sure, sure. I'd also heard, and I don't know if this is uh, true, is that zinc was used as a therapy and perhaps some uh, of these zygomycetes are zinc-loving, but I don't know if you've heard anything about that. I have not heard that. I, I'd certainly buy that that's a possibility. They, they love iron, so they may love other metals too. Yeah, I, I would be interested in reading more about that. And speaking of reading things, uh, just the, the uh, work that you referenced, uh, just if I can get that right, that was in JCI Insight, Immunogenetics Associated with Severe Coccidiotomycosis. Yeah, Amy Sue did just a marvelous job with that paper. And, and really, I think that's going to be an advance that the, the field has been looking forward to for a long time. Great. So if people want to check that out. Um, some other uh, questions related to Coxie. How did you uh, end up at UC Davis and do you see Coxie up, up at UC Davis? Yeah, so uh, you know, was recruited here at the end of fellowship from San Antonio. Uh, they were really looking for somebody in, in mycology. Um, at that time, my wife also owed, owed some Air Force time. So, you know, the Air Force base is right here by Davis and Sacramento. So it was a good situation for both of us. 
And we, and you know, the, the reference lab for coccidiomycosis is in Davis. It's right on the undergraduate campus. You know, uh, Dr. Papagiannis really founded that lab and did a marvelous job running that for a long time and only recently retired. So, so the UC Davis has had a long history of involvement with co- coccidioides research and diagnostics. Uh, and we certainly see a lot of really bad coxie cases. We're, we're just a little bit at the north end of the Central Valley in California. And so we get referred patients from all over Northern California for really the most severe cases. So, so really quite challenging. These are, again, mostly immunocompetent people that have got serious infections. Now, historically, fluconazole has been sort of the go-to drug for uh Many cases of coccidioidomycosis. Now, now that there's posiconazole, voriconazole, isabuconazole, is there any reason or rationale to use one over the other? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we have recently been debating. So it turned out that no one had really ever done a large-scale in vitro susceptibility study for coxie. And we just uh-huh. put that together maybe five or six years ago. And the fluconazole MICs are high. The MIC-50 is 8 to 16, which is more in line with how we sort of think of Canada glabrata. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we do tend to balk at using fluconazole for Canada glabrata, right? We want to make sure it's on mm-hmm. the lower range of the MICs. Otherwise, we're going to find a reason to use a different drug. We found the same thing with coccidioides, and that's very similar to all the endemic pathogens. You don't, you don't use fluconazole up front for blasto or histo or sporothrix, so it, so it made a lot of sense. And, and we know from old reports that that most patients with coxie do better on high dose fluconazole. So, you know, some of these patients are on a gram of fluconazole a day or more. Mm-hmm. And I've really contended that rather than increasing patients to high dose fluconazole, where they're going to have a lot of toxicity, we should probably use a different drug. Itraconazole has very low MICs, as does Posa, uh, Vori, Isabuconazole. Etc. So, so I really look for reasons to put them on a different azole if they have ongoing symptoms, or if they, I think they have toxicity from fluconazole. So, just to zoom out on that a bit, if they have primary coccidioidal pneumonia, fluconazole is probably just fine for you know ninety percent of those patients. If they have disseminated infection, I tend to really push more towards one of the other triazoles for disseminated infections. Now, people that don't deal with a lot of uh coxie, but deal with fungi, we tend to think, oh, it's a bad fungal infection. Go to uh, ambisome. Is there a role for uh, polyenes in uh, coccidioidomycosis, or are the azoles going to be what you're going to go with? Yeah, the azoles are are fungistatic for coccidioides, just just like for the other um, endemic fungi. So if, if my sort of rule is if they're in the hospital, they probably need ambisome. Not always, but but they probably need ambisome when they're in the hospital. Sometimes we give that uh, in conjunction with a triazole. So we give ambisome mm-hmm. with a triazole, trying to get them better. It's the rare patient that we'll have on ambisome out of the hospital, mostly from the electrolyte issues that just you know really concerns us to have patients uh, miss a few labs and be profoundly hypokalemic or something like that. So yeah, we really reserve ambisome for our inpatients, but but the vast majority are on chronic triazoles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now getting into some real esoteric stuff. Uh, interferon gamma, is that something that you ever use? Uh, I have used that only in desperation. So when, when patients have, you know, multi-site dissemination, we, we really can't get control of the infection with our currently available antifungals. Um, we've reached for interferon gamma. It's very expensive. You know, insurance doesn't always cover that for patients. 
And then the patients that have really been worked up genomically, some of them, their genetic defect, they won't respond to interferon gamma. So it's, it's sort of a defect further down the pathway. So loading them with more interferon gamma really doesn't give you anything other than expense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons we're hopeful with, you know, whole genome sequencing and declining costs, uh, transcriptomics, we're going to be able to, to really dive into what's the exact molecular mechanism for this specific patient. Why do they have bad coxie? And then how can we fix that problem with uh, interferon gamma, uh, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then there's some exciting new drugs. Olorafim is, uh, is being tested for coccidiotomycosis. We've talked about nicomycin Z forever. I don't know what the status of that drug is. And is there any role for uh, Fosmanogepix? Does that do anything for coxie? Yeah, so Fosmanogepix has been looked, I mean, in vitro, the results look really good. Josh Fear's group from UC San Diego uh, has presented the, the mouse model data. It looks like a pretty good option. We've used out of desperation in some of our coxie patients, and then they've done well. You know, the next nicomycin Z really hasn't made it into clinical use. I, I think it's a bit stuck in development. I, mm-hmm. I think it's been passed over by Fosmanogepix and Alorafem as far as the rapidity that those drugs are likely to come to market. And then Alorafem, I think, has a lot of promise as well. It's fungicidal as an oral agent. So, so that's really very exciting for us to be able to have them on an oral drug, even when they're at home, that's killing the fungus. And they have presented some, some results. And I presented the results of the phase two study for coxie. You know, it has a lot of efficacy for, for a majority of patients. And these are patients who failed everything else. So, so this was, you know, deep salvage therapy and, and Alorafem rescued a significant number of those patients. So I think it is pretty exciting opportunity and a good time to be in mycology as a whole with these new mm-hmm. drugs coming to market. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, after um, a decade or two decades of uh, lean years, I feel like we're back where we were when uh, the Azoles uh, started coming out. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, with, with that influx of, of research and, and hopefully new investigators entering the field with new ideas, you know, I think that's how we're going to see big advances in this field. Now, for a while, there was something, uh, the Valley Fever Vaccine Project. Is that still going? And uh, are you involved? I am. I'm, I don't do any direct research on vaccines. I, I, I certainly follow that with great interest. There's a number of vaccines in development. Um, so AbbVie has a vaccine that's already on the market. It's a live attenuated vaccine that's used mm-hmm. in dogs. So I think that's that's pretty interesting, right? It's already available. It could be easily leveraged to start doing human trials. You know, I, I would really defer to the fungal geneticists about the risk for uh, recombination or regaining virulence and, and some of those things, uh, which have been much discussed at our meetings. mRNA technology, there's there's a number of mRNA candidate vaccines that have already entered different stages of development. So I think there's going to be a bit of a race and competition to see which one makes it. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you ask me which one I would like, I would like a vaccine that's pan-endemic. So, you know, histo, coxie, a lot of these share several antigenic regions. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we know from some old studies, if you've had coxie, you're immune to histo. If you've had histo, mm-hmm. you're not immune to coxie. So, you know, a coxie vaccine might protect against blasto, histo, et cetera. And that would be pretty exciting. I think that's a bigger mm-hmm. market. And just from a viability standpoint, that'd be more attractive for one of the, the companies. But I would really like to see a pan-endemic vaccine. You know, histoplasma for patients starting TNF alpha blockers, that's a big problem for uh, a pretty big part of the country. So this may solve a lot of problems at the same time rather than just 
focusing on coccidial mycosis. And maybe just in time as we see more uh, fungi emerging. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of um, animals, I remember a few years ago, somebody that had been based in Texas told me that blasto was actually a problem for dogs. And when I think about it, the dogs have their uh, snout right there in the uh, in the dirt where the fungi live. So it makes a lot of sense to develop vaccines for animals in endemic areas. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, the, the dog owners have, you know, sort of a consortium and, and have, you know, funded the vaccine development, I think, from their own, you know, goodwill. But the other problem that I had not really thought about, one of the veterinarians here at UC Davis was talking to me about military working dogs or canine units with police. Mm -hmm. um, those are very expensive dogs. You know, they're mm -hmm. 80 to over 100,000 to train. And when, when they develop coccidiomycosis, that's a big loss to the police force, a task force, a military unit. So that's one of the groups that they really are eager to vaccinate to kind of protect them from potential loss to their, you know, sort of service and, and they're a key component of those of those teams. So, you know, that's something I hadn't really thought about is the expense of some of these dogs. And, and certainly we all love our, our pets, uh, mm -hmm. so we want to protect them as well. But yeah, I, I think it's an interesting time, you know, with all the declining cost of sequencing and, and research, you know, we're going to really see some key advancements over the next decade. I think we've stolen a lot of technology from the advances in cancer care. You know, cancer is going to have true precision medicine very soon. Mm -hmm. And we, we have much discussed that in infectious disease and, and really haven't been able to do it yet. But I think it's coming. Great. Yeah. Uh, going to switch gears here for a second and ask you about uh, some cases. These are um, hypothetical cases, but they're, they're loosely related to actual people that, that I've seen and that others in our group have seen. So we are based in the East Coast. So, um, you, know, you know, with air travel and people moving around. Our patients sometimes have been in uh, coxie endemic areas. And then, as you've said, maybe areas that we didn't previously think of as coxie endemic do have the uh, the fungus in the environment. So here's a, a type of a patient that uh, we see from time to time on the transplant service. They uh, are somebody that has a lower respiratory tract infection and fevers. They get a lot of tests because uh, they come in and, and we want to try to figure out what's going on with them. And somebody, for whatever reason, orders a COXI antibody as part of the uh, the testing battery. They get put on uh, whatever workhorse antibiotic we typically have, whether it's cefepime and vancomycin or pipercil and tazobactam alone or piptazo and vanco. And they get better, but they're not better completely. And we don't know if they're not better completely because it's just going to take a little bit of time or because they have uh, maybe a fungal infection in the background, and lo and behold, COXI antibody comes back at one to two. They live on the East Coast, spend some time in COXI endemic areas, and I guess the question is, what do we do with that result? What does it mean? Do we start antifungal therapy? Do we retest at some point in the future? How do you play this? Yeah, that's a good question in a, a very gray area. So just for people listening who may not you know, think about COXI testing very often. Most patients have a screening EIA, so that's just going to be a positive or negative result. If they have a high index of suspicion, they should go on to have more specific testing like this patient did, and they had a complement fixation titer of one to two. Um, and one to two is a pretty low titer, but in a transplant patient, that may be highly significant, or it may be that they had infection five years ago and still have a detectable titer. Um, so that's what I mean by a gray area for this patient. 
So I would I would really dig into the history. You know, how long ago were they in an endemic region? Is this really a, a new infection? But the problem is coxie can certainly relapse, right? They may have had an old coxie granuloma and never even know they had an infection, got a recent transplant, and now they've reactivated their coccidioides, somewhat analogous to reactivation of latent tuberculosis. So, so this low titer is, is sort of very gray. It doesn't push me either direction. In a transplant patient, I probably would check a urine coxie antigen. If that's mm. positive, I would say this is, you know, an ongoing infection and get them on treatment. If that's negative, I would probably talk to the patient and the pulmonary team about doing a bronchoscopy. Mm-hmm. And the reasons for that are, you know, this is going to be a very long course of treatment on a transplant patient with coxie. Triazoles used for long courses have a lot of cumulative toxicity. The patients really dislike azoles long-term for coxie in my experience. So I'd really try to nail down the diagnosis. So if we try to do a bronchoscopy, it's negative. We're stuck in this gray area. I think they're going to be stuck on you know, fluconazole or itraconazole, depending on drug interactions in this case. That's very helpful. Uh, in terms of uh, one to two, can that, can that ever be a false positive or that means that at some point they had the infection or potentially it's active? We do see very rare cases of false positives. I mean, just a couple a year out of the thousands of samples sent to the, the Davis Serology Lab. So the way to look at this is the complement fixation test should almost always be done in conjunction with an immunodiffusion test. Mm-hmm. If the if the antibody is one to two, then their immunodiffusion for IgG should also be positive since complement mm-hmm. fixation is a test for IgG. If they're discordant when the, the comp fix test is one to two, but the immunodiffusion is negative, those are the ones we see really rarely. And other fungi can cause that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might look for histoplasma. We would we would do this automatically in the lab. We'd set it up for histoplasma in their diffusion as well. We've seen the phaohyphomycosis do that rarely. I mean, those are obviously rare infections anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- those are cases where I or someone in the lab are usually alerted and they call the ordering physician to talk through the test results because that's such a rare phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, very uh, very helpful. The, uh- the testing for coxie continues to be mysterious to many people, so this is very illuminating because uh, I think uh, it's it, it's just that particularly people that don't live or work in an endemic area uh, may not think about this test a lot, and then all of a sudden you get the result and you're like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think an awful lot of people have my cell phone number. I give it out liberally for uh, coxie questions and whatever else we can help with. They can always just call the UC Davis Coxie Lab and ask to talk to me. They'll just forward it to my cell phone. Uh, we we want to be a resource. We know that a lot of people don't see this infection more than a few times in their whole career. So we, we, we want to be available um, for people. If you're really interested in Coxie testing, JCM asked us to write a review that kind of summarize how to think through this. Ian mm-hmm. McCarty was the lead author that was in JCM, I think just earlier this year, maybe late last year. Um, you know, coccidioides diagnostic testing. So not to, you know, promote my own article, but it, it's just a it's just a review of, of, of all the different uh, coxie testing and, and how to use them. No, that's great. Yeah, no, you should definitely promote your own article. And uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, we, we can also uh, figure out some way where uh, we can uh, get you uh, people to put their credit card information when they call <laughs> in for. Uh... <laughs> no. Uh Great. That, that is very helpful. So here's uh, another uh, 
patient, extensive bronchiectasis, chronic progressive worsening cough, shortness of breath, CT scan shows new left upper lobe and subacute bronchiolitis and new ground glass opacities. And this is a patient that is evaluated, not an immune compromised patient in the classic sense. Serum beta-glucan is obtained, comes back very high, 472, galactaman in 1.65. Serum coxy complement fixation comes back at 1 to 4. I can give you a little bit of, a, of an update. A follow-up was done, and, and it's actually at 1 to 8. This person grew up in the West Coast. So I guess the, the, the first question is, is the beta-glucan from the coxy potentially? Yeah, I think so. I mean, by dry weight in the lab, coccidioides are about two-thirds beta-glucan. So there's mm-hmm. just an enormous amount of beta-glucan present in coxy. If, if any of our listeners are thinking, oh, why not echinocandins then if there's so much beta-glucan? Uh, in vitro, at least, the MIC distribution for echinocandins is enormous. They're low to very, very high. There's probably too much beta-glucan in coxy for um, echinocandins to be effective at the doses we typically use. It's just sort of saturated by how much of the target site is present. That said, we, we've used them in you know deep salvage setting, et cetera. But, but I do think the beta-glucan in this case is probably from coxy. It's pretty high, which we do see with coxy. Galactomannan, that can be false positive. Uh, in some cases, uncommonly with coxyoides. I, I do sort of wonder if they have two things here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and then certainly if their coxy antibody has gone up from one to four to one to eight, that may be, you know, certainly related to, to worsening infection. Although we, we generally try to tell people a, a change in titer by one dilution. So one to four to one to eight is not clinically significant. We, you know, mm. for us to really say they're failing therapy, we would, we would want to see them go from one to four to one to 16. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think it looks like, this patient was treated with posaconazole for presumed aspergillosis and coxy. I, I think that's just absolutely the right thing to do here. I think that they certainly could have two different things, and it's going to be really hard to tease that apart in the absence of, a, you know, an invasive procedure. So I, I agree with that. I'm a big fan of posaconazole for coccidioides. Um, I think I'd have done the exact same thing. So then in terms of uh, length of therapy, we tend to start with aspergillosis with uh, a three-month or so, sometimes a little shorter, a lot of times a lot longer course of therapy for somebody with invasive coccidiomycosis that's not involving the central nervous system, that's mostly involving the lungs. How long do you tend to go? Six months, 12 months, forever? Yeah, for, for this patient with extensive bronchiectasis, chronic bronchiolitis, I sort of wonder how much steroids they've gotten over time, mm-hmm. uh, if, if any, hopefully not. But they're going to be more on the six to 12 month minimum duration of therapy for their coccidioides. I would guess they need longer, but you know, I, I don't image them a whole lot. I really go by their symptoms. I like mm-hmm. to see their, their compound fixation titer decline. You do not have to treat them until it's at zero. Treating them until they're at zero often takes a decade. So it, you know, I, I tend to view these coxy serologies. Maybe syphilis isn't the perfect analogous mm-hmm. infection, but I, I, I like to see them come down at least two or three dilutions, but it does not have to be zero to take them off therapy. So then you mentioned the uh, the urine antigen, and it, is that a, a sugar that is made by the fungus? It is. I think that the urine antigen test really only has utility in the highly immunocompromised population, so, mm-hmm. so mostly transplant patients. 
Uh, and we've sent the antigen test for patients growing coxie in their blood cultures. And if they're immunocompetent, the test is negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's really only, you know, profound HIV, recent transplants that are heavily immunosuppressed. Those are the patients we found antigen testing useful. So this patient with bronchiectasis, I would be surprised if they had a positive urine antigen and probably wouldn't even send it in that circumstance, but mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't fault other people if, if they if their experience was different. And then in terms of uh, the timing, so this particular patient, unless there's coxie that's going around in Maryland, uh, I'm almost certain that it's reactivation. I used to think that uh, many opportunistic infections are reactivation, but then I learned that actually maybe most are acute infection or subacute infection. How does it work with COXI or is there a way to tell? Yeah, there's not a good way to tell. I mean, there's some research stuff where we've done, you know, binding uh, affinity assays. This, you know, is, this, is this new or old? You know, you can, you can look at sort of the affinity of the IgG host response to see if this is a mature response or more of acute, but nothing clinical that, that we can order that, that's useful to really tell those, those things apart. I think the one thing that's different about coxie compared to, say, histoplasma is if when you resect a granuloma from, from coxie that the patient might have had 30 years prior, say they think, you know, they, they saw something on a chest CT and said, oh, that looks like lung cancer, and they resect it, and they see that it's coccidioides um, under histopathology, we can grow live coxie out of those granulomas from 30 years ago. Wow. Often, when the same thing happens with histo, you can't grow it. Mm-hmm. Um, so coxie is very savvy about avoiding our immune system and staying viable for long periods of time mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sort of academically i think that's probably just a, a virulence mechanism of coccidioides you know coccidioides it's been proposed that they have a a requirement for a rodent reservoir and that's where they sort of lie latent in the lungs of these different rodents they wait for them to die rodents when they feel like they're going to die often go underground so once the rodent dies, coccidioides has a ready food source and it's already underground to begin wow. its life cycle over again. So uh, and we think that because coccidioides, say compared to aspergillus, is missing a lot of the enzymes that break down plant material. Mm-hmm. Instead, coccidioides has keratinases, uh, et cetera, to break down skin and hair. Hmm. So we think it's a little bit more programmed for mammalian infection than vegetative material. Wow. Fascinating. And maybe that explains a little bit about the restriction, the geographic restrictions. Maybe they need a specific type of uh, rodent. I don't know. I'm just making it up. No, that's absolutely true. You're right on. Um, so it's the, um, you know, this kangaroo rat and the pocket mouse. Last I had read about these, they were both threatened. So we can't really trap them in the United States to do, mm-hmm. you know, serologic assays. Colleagues in Mexico have, have trapped these. They have a very high incidence of infection serologically. And when, when, uh, histopathologically when they're termed. So, it, you know, I think that all sort of fits together nicely. Very difficult to prove, you know, a evolution of an organism, though. So, uh, but, but I'm, I'm fairly convinced by the, the folks that work on that. Wow. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, some of the problems uh, with testing is I've, I've had a few patients that have had pretty severe infection and they were discovered with biopsy. But the coxie serology was negative. How do, how does that work out? Yeah, and so so I presume those are transplant patients or highly immunocompromised. Both some some highly immunocompromised, but also people that did not have a known immune deficiency state. 
Okay. Yeah, in the in the transplant setting, again, highly immunocompromised, they may not make a serologic response mm-hmm. um, to coccidioides. It's also important to know where your coccidioides serologies are going. There's a number mm-hmm. of different labs. I, I'm obviously very biased towards the UC Davis lab. I think it just has the most experience and a, a long history of, of doing that test. And I'm not the director of that lab. I'm a consultant to that lab. But but I think they do just fantastic work. So, you know, but it, we also do see the rare patient that that, that happens in that uh, serologically they're negative, but they've got a positive um, biopsy or culture. And there's just usually, we usually can find a reason, you know, uh, combined variable immunodeficiency, other uh, immunoglobulin deficiencies, or profound immunodeficiency from transplant, et cetera, sort of ties that up nicely why they didn't make antibodies for, for most of these patients. But yeah, we treat them aggressively, you know, a lot of antifungals. Some of those patients have two to three years minimum of therapy. Some do get on treatment for life. So mm-hmm. remain, remains a challenging disease. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, the uh, toxicities can accumulate over time. And particularly when you're cranking up the fluconazole dose. Yeah, I think that's sort of an overlooked aspect of the long-term management is we tend to view fluconazole as relatively benign. Mm-hmm as does the package insert, right? I mean, it's it's often, it's most commonly used for vaginal yeast infections and they take 150 milligrams once. Mm-hmm. But then you put patients on 400 to 1200 milligrams daily for years, you know, those side effects are often fatigue, chelitis, xerosis, or really dry skin, and alopecia. Well, those sound fairly benign when you read about them, but the patients absolutely hate it. But not, they usually don't hate it until they start feeling better from their coccyx. And then we talk about their hair loss, their, their dry skin. And the dry skin, it can get to the point where they bleed. Hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we found 50% of our patients on long-term fluconazole have to have a change to itra, posa, et cetera, due to those side effects. Yeah. No, I think the alopecia, and by the way, that's not what happened to me, but uh, the <laughs> alopecia can be, uh, can be very disturbing, uh, particularly to, to women. It really is. It, it's so frustrating that we even had looked at that in a rat model of alopecia from chronic fluconazole, found the mechanism is telogen effluvium. Um, so that's the base of the hair shaft becomes sort of weaker. And that we think that's why it's more common actually in women is their hair length is longer. So that's a heavier weight mm. uh, to stress sort of the base of the hair follicle. You know, before we did this, I thought, oh, well, you know, most of most of us as men just think we're getting older and that's, you know, I'm on the spectrum of losing my hair as well. So, you know, the men sort of didn't talk about it much. They just, they didn't relate it to their fluconazole, but, but our, our female patients definitely did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, that's really challenging. The good news is it, it typically grows back when you stop fluconazole. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but women with longer hair, that's, that's obviously going to take years to fill in completely uh, to what it looked like pre fluconazole. Yeah. And, and then I've seen, um, and I, I don't know that that's that it's reported. I've, I've had a few patients on isabuconazole that it makes them feel weird. I've had the same experience. Some of the patients on isabuconazole just it, it, it's sort of a vague. Uh, they just don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly have a lot of patients that say they have no toxicity at all, and it doesn't seem like there's a clear relationship between the serum blood levels and toxicity. When when patients say things like that, I usually do check their isabuconazole blood level. And if it comes back more than 10, you know, I'll have their dose and see if they feel better. And some do and some don't. But yeah, I think that's what we've thought of as the cleanest triazole. But but that's been the complaint I do hear about that one from patients is some, I just don't feel quite right. 
And then we have the, the other triazole that we talked about, posaconazole. And a few years back, I had a patient that uh, had been on uh, itraconazole for long-term treatment of histoplasmosis. And then uh, she got switched to posaconazole. Somebody was uh, well-meaning and her blood pressure shot up. And she told them my blood pressure shot up. And, uh, and it, this is not my scleroderma blood pressure. This is something else. And uh, they uh, very wisely uh, stopped the posaconazole and put her back on itraconazole and the blood pressure normalized. And uh, when she told me about that, I said, you know, I just read an article from a colleague out west about why this happened to you. And uh, she was thrilled to find out that, that there was a, uh, a reason. So tell us about that work. Yeah, so we had found posaconazole and, and really itraconazole also inhibit key steps in sort of the cholesterol endocrine pathway, 11-beta-hydroxylase uh, specifically. And that leads to a buildup in, in precursors that really have very potent mineralocorticoid activity. So they end up with almost, a, we called it, you know, pseudo-hyperaldosteronism because they get hypertensive, hypokalemic, and alkalotic. It's sort of that classic triad for too much aldosterone. You know, some collaborators we've worked with in Switzerland have really done all the in vitro work and the enzyme kinetics and exactly where it's binding. And it looks like when we look at those curves for enzyme inhibition, you know, posaconazole has a sigmoidal curve, which is why we think it's seen most commonly with posaconazole. So, you know, a small increase in posaconazole blood levels causes a big change in enzyme inhibition. Wow. So if you look further down, itraconazole is, you know, a little, little smoother slope. And then the active metabolite of itraconazole, hydroxyitraconazole, also can do that. And then there's a big gap between the other triazoles. So it, mm -hmm. it can happen with the other triazoles, but we think those would be at very high doses. So, you know, we saw that on a lot of our patients on chronic POSA. Our COXI clinic is now a little bit of the hypertension clinic because it mm -hmm. seems like that's a lot of what we talk about. We do reduce their dose, right? So if they've got a high blood level, you know, above... Four, we, we definitely reduce their dose of posaconazole, try to get them more mm -hmm. down to the twos. The problem with hypertension, though, is if they've already started to remodel their vasculature, it may be permanent. They may have permanent hypertension after that due to the stiffness wow. of the arterial walls, right? So, so that's something we check pretty quickly. We, we get those patients back, you know, check their blood pressure in two weeks, check again in a month. If there's any signs of it going up, we do sort of the renin aldosterone. I'm sorry, renin. Uh, yeah, renin and aldosterone. I work up if that's positive, we go to sort of the second round of testing. But yeah, I, th I think that's a problem. But posaconazole is a great drug for COXI, certainly other molds, but something to really keep in mind in the follow-up of these patients. Well, you probably use pound for pound uh, more posaconazole than most people. Uh, we use it a lot here in the uh, leukemia program, bone marrow transplant program, but they're not on it for the length of time that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, you know, we had talked about, you know, why have we missed this side effect with posaconazole? And I think it's twofold, right? When we had the posaconazole solution, we were generally happy to have any detectable blood level. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think we kind of missed it. And then once the tablets came out, we're able to really get higher blood levels. We tend to push the dose for some of these bad infections. But also the most common reason we use posaconazole is in prophylaxis of our high-risk hematologic oncology patients. Those patients tend to have lower blood pressures, um, mm. they tend to be in the hospital. So I think that we've missed, you know, that hypertension, we, that was maybe even a good side effect, right? To bring their blood pressure up a bit. Mm -hmm. um, they have a lot of reasons to have hypokalemia or alkalosis, you know, vomiting, 
different fluids were given them, et cetera. So uh, I think that we missed it just by the type of patients that historically received it. And then also when the solution was out, just the lower doses. Fascinating. So in, in our last few minutes, uh, it's July, July 1st uh, in uh, Maryland. Marijuana became uh, legal or whatever term they have for it. And many of our patients had already been using marijuana beforehand, uh, particularly uh, cancer patients. And I have seen a few cases of uh, aspergillosis and people that use marijuana. You know, I, I can't prove for a fact that that's how they got it. But you had written about uh, what you find in California marijuana, and it's quite a bit of different things. Yeah, so that story started same thing when 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 it was sort of legalized in California. We had noticed an increase in the number of aspergillosis cases we were taking care of in the hospital, and I thought, you know, this association seems to be pretty clear with increased use. And I certainly understand our cancer patients are suffering from neuropathy, nausea, vomiting, and they they may reach out to cannabis to sort of help control their symptoms. And, and you know, I don't have any problem with them doing it. I just wanted them to do it safely. Mm -hmm. um, so we had started an investigation of that and worked with a sort of, I don't know what the right word for it. It's a, it's a group that actually patients take their cannabis to, to find out exactly what specific strain they're, they're using. They have mm -hmm. a pack bio sequencer there. So they, they sequence their, their cannabis, but they had access to a lot of community strains from, from, um, different groups. And so we, we had cultured those, uh, we did, you know, PCR testing of those to see what bacteria and fungi were present, saw a lot of aspergillus, saw some mucormycosis, saw cryptococcus was in some of those. And then when we cultured those, same fungi certainly present, and then also found a lot of gram negatives, which can routinely be resistant to quinolones that patients are on, beta-lactams, et cetera. So we really contended that patients need to be aware of this risk and inhaling cannabis is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cigarettes have filters in them. Cannabis typically does not. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we've tried to counsel patients, hey, if you want to do this, you need to cook it uh, and eat it rather than mm -hmm. inhale it. So uh, as a way of inactivating those microbes, we, we followed that up, talked to the CDC, did a nationwide sort of search through some of the big data repositories they have access to. Saw the same thing in clinical um, situations. Patients using cannabis had more fungal diseases, uh, including aspergillus. So I think it's definitely true. That's how we counsel patients. But yeah, I mean, we, we desperately try to control these different things, but it's an uphill battle. Yeah, no, it's definitely a challenge when there's a pharmaceutical that's not regulated like a pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we would really like there, to, you know, if, if it's legalized nationally, we really think it needs to have a Surgeon General's warning in the same way so many other products do. You know, if you're immunocompromised, this may contain, you know, pathogens that lead to severe morbidity and mortality. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and because the, the, um, the counseling that happens is often an older person might have, uh, symptoms that they need to control. And then maybe a younger person in their family who's familiar with the product would counsel them, which is quite different than having a doctor counsel them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and they tend to view that as, as safe. It's, they, they view it as a naturopathic equivalent. Mm -hmm. and, and I just don't think that's accurate. I mean, you know, we go into great detail about our uh, neutropenic patients about bath toys for the risk of pseudomonas or, you know, raw salads, et cetera. But we've we've overlooked cannabis. We don't let them bring plants or flowers into the room. Mm -hmm. But cannabis is, you know, dead, decaying vegetative material that they're inhaling. And I think that's I think we've overlooked that as a medical community for a 
potential source of risk to our patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been enormously enlightening, a wide range of topics, but uh, just a great opportunity to uh, borrow from your expertise. And I'm sure that people that are listening are going to find this very valuable. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, take care. Yeah, my pleasure. All the best.